0: Well, thank you, Brian. It's very kind. I'd love to meet the man of whom you spoke in your introduction. But uh, I'm here anyway, and so I do appreciate that. It is a blessing to be here. Thank you for having me. And uh, we'll be in Ephesians 1. We started preaching Ephesians a few weeks ago over at our church, and so... Um, This was our second sermon in the book, and as such, it's still um, sort of in introduction mode, and so we won't dig too deeply into too many details in these verses. We're going to stay at altitude, so to speak, and I want you to see just a few of the themes that Paul introduces here early in this letter to the Ephesians. And in fact, um, he will flesh out some of these themes as the book unfolds, but this is a very Packed letter, Ephesians is. And in fact, this opening um, chapter is pretty unique in the New Testament. Ephesians 1, verses 3 to 14 um, is one long sentence in Greek. It's the longest sentence in the New Testament. It's 202 words. And Paul is excited. He's on a roll. The Apostle Paul, as he writes this letter, he's, he's speaking to an amanuensis who would write down his words, and if you read this book, you read it in one sitting, read it out loud if you can, and imagine this being one sentence, and you start to get a feel for what's happening. The Apostle Paul is excited. He's been reflecting on the love of God in Christ for us, but also God's plan for the universe for all of time and history culminating in Christ, and he's overwhelmed. And I'm certain you can't speak like this sitting down. I'm certain in my own imagination that he's pacing the room, getting more excited as he goes. Words and themes are tumbling out of his mouth that span eternity past to eternity future and many aspects of God's blessing uh, in the lives of his children. And I think he just goes until he kind of runs out of air um, or the amanuensis ran out of ink. One of these two. And so then he concludes down in 14 and and moves on. But he really is going after some of the biggest, grandest, deepest, richest themes that the Bible has to offer us. And so uh, this morning, we'll look at verses 3 to 6 together, but briefly. We're just going to pull out a few of these great themes and turn them over. And my hope this morning is to encourage you. My hope this morning is for you to lay hold of the type of spiritual riches that are already yours in Christ, the spiritual blessings that already belong to you in Christ. And I'm convinced that often we don't realize just how spiritually wealthy we are. And we use that language carefully nowadays because there has been a poison called the prosperity gospel. Um, and it started here in America and has been exported out around the world. And it's, a, it's an unbiblical poison that says that God's goal for you is to be rich and healthy. Well, Jesus didn't get that memo because he was poor for a lifetime and then they killed him. And um, the Apostle Paul didn't get that memo because he was not rich and had a thorn in the flesh that he pleaded with God to remove and he wouldn't. And so, um, but because this This poison has become so prevalent, we're very careful not to lean in that direction, and the result is that we're even afraid to use the language of riches, sometimes biblically. And yet Ephesians is a book about riches. It's a book about spiritual riches. It's a book about gospel riches. It's a book about being wealthy spiritually beyond imagination, immeasurably. And so that's a theme we want to camp on this morning as we go through these verses and explain that. And it's very important because if we don't understand what we have in Christ, then we will not live accordingly. But when we know what is ours in Christ, then it injects power and confidence into our faith and our life and our witness. And so I want you to listen to these verses as we just begin to scratch at some of these themes. So again, we'll be looking at verses 3 through 6 this morning. Um, the first sermon that we did in this book, my co-pastor summarized the book of Ephesians like this. He said, the church stands center stage in God's cosmic theater to display His glory through our salvation in Christ and submission in the Spirit. I think that's a good summary of the book of Ephesians. The church stands center stage in God's cosmic theater to display His glory through our salvation in Christ and submission in the Spirit. And you know, all who study Ephesians use that same kind of sweeping, grand, big-picture language. Mark Dever said here in this little letter, We probably have more clarity on God's ultimate purpose for creation than in any other book in the Bible. In Ephesians, he writes, Paul pulls the camera back to the widest angle. Ephesians sketches eternity past uh, to eternity future, revealing God's plan to display his wisdom and glory by saving sinners unto himself and gathering them together in Christ at the culmination of time as we know it. That's what Ephesians is about. It's a, it's a short book, and yet it's a massive book with tremendous weight. But don't think for a minute that just because Paul is, is looking at the big picture of the plan of God in this letter, that you won't be personally blessed by God's love for you as his child, individually and as a family, if you dig into this little letter of Ephesians, or if you listen this morning to these verses. In fact, Ephesians, despite its small size also, I think, has more to say about the riches of God's blessings in the lives of his children than any other book in the New Testament. One writer said, this is your spiritual checkbook. And every time you write a check out of this bank, your funds are non-diminished. In other words, you can write checks on the riches of God spiritually as often as you want, for as much as you, uh, for as much as you want, and never diminish the account. That's the book of Ephesians. Uh, He continues, it's a book about riches. It's a book about fullnesses. It's a book about being filled with things. It's a book about inheritance. It's a book that tells us what we own in Christ. Some have called it the treasure house of the Bible, so wrote John MacArthur. Well, in fact, you might think of Ephesians broadly as gospel Riches in chapters 1 through 3 and gospel response in chapters 4 through 6. Gospel riches in the first half and gospel response in the second half. But don't take my word for that. Uh, Let's look together at verses 3 through 6, and you can take God at his word. Let me pray for us one more time, and we will start in verse 3. Father, we do thank you for the privilege of knowing you. We know you purely because of your sovereign grace, because of your work in Christ, Father, because when we were sinners, worthless sinners, rebels shaking our fist at you, Father, you moved toward us in love. Father, in mercy you withheld the punishment that we deserved. Father, in grace you poured out eternal life on us. And you did this, Lord, by placing our sins in Christ on the cross and pouring out the full measure of your wrath there even unto death. Oh, Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy in Christ toward all who believe. And so, Father, we thank you for your word that you have given us to guide us, to strengthen us, to fill us us to fullness with the knowledge of You and Your presence in our lives to work in us to do the things that You call us to do. Oh, Father, we thank You and we praise You, and I pray this morning as we look at just a very short passage of Your Word, and yet a passage so full of truth we have to pick and choose what to focus on this morning, Father, we thank You and I pray that that You would illuminate the truth of Your Word to our hearts and minds and change us by it. Father, would you make us more like Christ? Would you change each of us, just that that one degree of glory this morning, Father, more into the image of Christ? We thank you, and we praise you, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Starting again in verse 3, Paul says this, beginning this sentence as he's just bubbling over in excitement, he says, blessed Be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Do you catch a repeated word there? When Scripture is repeating itself, underline that word. Um, blessings used three times in this verse, and Paul is setting the tone for the rest of this section, really, which tumbles forward in this ecstatic listing of God's blessings. And Paul says, blessed be God, which means that we should bless Him. It's a call for us to bless God. And when We bless God. When Scripture talks about us blessing God, it means that we praise Him or that we thank Him. The word for blessing here means a good word. It's really the word eulogy. Um, We've taken the word eulogy directly from this word. It means to speak a good word about someone or to them, and so it's to praise or thank. So we bless God with words. But Paul says, We bless God because He has blessed us. But when Scripture speaks of God blessing us, it refers to God's actions, to God's work, what He has done for us, or or what He has given to us. So we bless God with words in response to all the ways that He has blessed us with works, um, what He has done to and for and in us through Christ. And so how has God blessed us? In what ways has God blessed us? Well, Paul is speaking big here. And he says this uh, in verse 3, He has blessed us first in Christ. And that's a key phrase in this book. He has blessed us in Christ or through Christ or in Him or in whom. This word, this phrase in Christ and the different forms of it occurs over and over and over and over throughout the book of Ephesians. In fact, you could sit with this book in one sitting. It would only take you maybe 15 minutes. And you could read straight through it and just highlight every instance of the phrase in Christ or in him or in whom. You'll have a lot of yellow on the page when you're done. But you could return to each and every one of those highlightings, one a day for quite a while, And just meditate on one a day and pray about that and think about that. And you would just be beginning to crack the lid of the treasure chest of spiritual blessings of Ephesians. Because each one of those highlights is a new gem to pick up and consider and spin in the light of God's glory and grace. I encourage you to do that. And so Paul says here, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's just coming out big. He says, I don't even know how to say this, but God has blessed you in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And I want you to see this, because this is the language of lavish grace. This is the language of riches. This is the language of fullness. And so let me give you a brief sketch of this fullness language in Ephesians that you can return to later and flesh out for yourself. The word grace appears 13 times, including the opening words and the conclusion. <laughs> so the letter is bound together and bookended by God's grace. Grace. His gifts unto you in Christ. The word gift itself appears four times. In Ephesians 2.8, your salvation is called the gift of God. The gift of God. In 3 7, Paul says he was made a minister of the gospel according to the gift of God's grace, which was given by the working of his power. It's a gift given in power. Remember that when God blesses us, it's by action worked according to his infinite power, and we see that he works it out in gift giving. Oh, how good God is. In 4.7, Paul says, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. He's stacking the language of grace and blessing. And Christian, you are not excluded. If you have come to God through faith in Christ alone, then God has graced you in Christ. You are already possessing more eternal spiritual blessing than I'm sure you yet realize. I don't know that we will ever even scratch the surface of understanding how richly blessed we are in Christ. In fact, if God is infinite and eternal and infinitely good, which He is, then I think we may spend all of eternity on a renewed earth learning more and more and more about God's goodness toward us in Christ. You see, even when we get there, we will not have God's mind. We will have renewed human minds capable of learning forever, and I think that we will learn new dimensions of God's goodness and grace forever without ever exhausting the beauty thereof. You see, I think Paul knows this themes like this and he's speaking. He's trying to open a chest that's infinitely wide and long and deep and full of immeasurable treasures and he's using whatever language he can to try to convince us of this. And eight, quoting Psalm 68, Paul says, "...when Christ ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men." When Jesus rose from the grave, having broken forever the chains of sin that once held us in bondage, Jesus paraded our victory over sin through the streets of the spiritual realm, doling out gifts of grace to his children. This is what Paul is picturing in Ephesians 4, 8. The word riches appears six times in this letter. Christian, you are far more spiritually rich than you realize. I fear that we live, generally speaking, spiritually depleted and defeated and timid lives. We live like those who are spiritually poor, not realizing that we could not possibly be more spiritually rich. Because Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. You are not waiting for some second blessing. You've got the second and the third and the hundredth and the millionth and the infinitieth because you have, past tense, already been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Riches appears six times in this uh, book. In 1, 7 and 8, we have redemption according to the riches of God's grace which he lavished upon us. In 1, 18, Paul asked God to open the eyes of the hearts of the Ephesian believers to understand and experience the riches of his glorious inheritance. In 2, 4, we see that God is rich in mercy. God is rich in that quality which gives him joy in withholding the punishment you deserve. By transferring your sin unto Christ on the cross in your stead. Christian, God is rich enough in mercy to forgive every sin you've ever committed. Who is richer, you in your sin or God in his mercy? I would submit to you that it is God in his mercy. He can forgive you for every sin that you've ever committed. And God has yet in all of human history to turn down a sinner who comes in genuine repentance and faith. And he forgives to the uttermost and eternally every sinner who comes in genuine repentance and faith. And if you don't know Christ as your Savior yet, and you're wondering if God can forgive a person like you, stop wondering. I urge you to come today and experience the forgiveness and the grace of God the Father through Christ Jesus our Lord. In 2.7, we see, Christian, that God saved you and seated you in the heavenly places in Christ so that in the coming ages he might show what? The immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward you in Christ Jesus. You couldn't count the riches of God's grace if you had all eternity to try. His grace unto you is immeasurable, Christian. You see that Paul just can't quite contain himself in this letter And in 3.8, Paul says the purpose of his calling is to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Oh, how little sense a legalistic approach to the faith makes. Oh, how little sense legalistic preaching makes. If you came in here week after week, and Brian stood and just told you a couple things for you to do for God that week, oh, how that would fly in the face of Holy Scripture and the teaching of Paul. I praise God for faithful men who stand and declare to you the truth that God has done the work. And should we respond in faith to that work? Yes, of course. In those good works prepared beforehand that we sang about earlier in Ephesians 2.10. And yet, it is God who has done the work, and Paul just can't contain himself. He says, what am I called to preach as an apostle? I'm called to preach, in his words, the unsearchable riches of Christ toward you who believe. And in three sixteen to 19, Paul praised that God would strengthen the Ephesians according to the riches of his glory to understand how much God loves them with a love that surpasses knowledge. And what is the goal of God's lavish outpouring of spiritual riches on his children? Well, his goal is to fill you full of himself, full of his presence, by His Spirit as He forms Christ in you and gives you greater understanding of His Word. Fill, or fullness, is used five times in Ephesians. In one twenty-three. look there, Paul says that the body of Christ which God calls believers into is the fullness of Him who fills all in all. It's incredible. In 3.19, Paul prays that they would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that they may be filled with all the fullness of God. Isn't that incredible? He prays that they would know the unknowable, (laughs) would know something that surpasses knowledge. You say, well, it doesn't make sense. No, of course it doesn't, because you have a finite person praying for another finite person to lay hold of the infinite goodness of God. And so language describing that falls short at a certain point. (laughs) And so you get prayers like that. In 4.13, Paul reveals God's goal for your growth in Christ as a member of his body, that you would grow to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. The measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Blessed be the God and Father. You see why Paul is praising God of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every Spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. But often we don't realize what we have and we live lives that would look spiritually impoverished. Homer and Langley Collier were sons of a respected New York doctor. When their father died, they inherited his wealth and a huge home in the middle of New York City. Um, Years later, they were found dead, locked inside. The building was filled with trash, actual trash. In many places, hallways and rooms, they had made literal tunnels that you had to crawl through to get from one place to another. They hadn't left the building at that point in many, many years. They had basic supplies brought in to them. They were found dead. One of them um, was, I don't know, he died of, of some kind of an illness. The other one was killed in a makeshift booby trap that he had created to protect their mountains of trash from potential intruders. Because in their delusional state, despite having more than most other people in New York, they were very, very wealthy. They lived as though they were exceptionally poor, They valued the wrong things, meaning literal trash, and were so delusional that they thought others might be after their trash. And this manner of living literally killed them in the end. They were tremendously rich, but they lived like frightened, defensive paupers. And in the end, it killed them. Now, I wonder how many Christians move about this world with all of the riches of Christ behind them, supporting them at their disposal, and yet living their lives spiritually afraid and depleted and defeated. Meanwhile, they pile up all the wrong things and defend them and miss the opportunity to live life to the full as God has designed it to be lived, serving Him, sharing the gospel, enjoying the good gifts of His hand. Christian, all the riches of God's lavish grace are already yours in Christ, and you are already seated with Him in the heavenly realm. (laughs) If I could summarize all of that, I would say in Christ, God blessed us with every spiritual blessing. Christian, you are rich. We need to pray like it. And we need to talk to others like it. And we need to not be afraid to share the gospel riches that are already yours with others. But how did this come about? In the world's system, there are a few ways to come into great riches. Now, some who are rich worked for their wealth. Others were born into the right family and inherited some wealth. Some throughout history have stumbled upon wealth, finding a treasure. But how did you, as a Christian, come into possession of every spiritual blessing in Christ? Did you work for it spiritually? Were you, were you born into the right family spiritually? Did you happen to stumble into the right faith? You, you could have chosen a different religion, but you chose to examine Christianity, and, and lucky you, you were just smart enough, or lucky enough, you picked the right religion, so now you're, you're blessed in Christ. Is this how that came about, that you came into possession of every spiritual blessing? Well, in all cases, no. Look at verse 4 with me. Paul says it is for a very different reason that we are blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. He says, um, let's see, starting back here in verse 3, God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. Now, even as could be translated because because He chose us in Him. We are blessed with every spiritual blessing because God chose us in Christ. This is an expansion on or an explanation of God's blessing in verse 3. So, what is the basis of all this blessing being poured out? Uh, Do we deserve it? No. Do we do something to earn it? No, we do not earn God's blessing. Is it because of something inherent in us? Because you're essentially a good person, so of course God blessed you. (laughs) The answer is no. Did we get lucky? No, there's no luck. No, Paul says you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ because God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, as soon as I say the word election or choose or predestination, you can almost feel the debate coming on, can't you? Some of you have been in Christian circles long enough, if if that seems funny to you, you're saying, what debate? Praise the Lord. You're starting on a better foot. But some of you have been in churches long enough that you can just feel the debate coming on, but these words never spark debate in Scripture. These words come from pens filled to overflowing with gratitude and awe and wonder at God's mysterious, gracious work. And there's not a single argument anywhere in Scripture about the doctrine of election. In Psalm 74, why would Paul talk this way? Did he make this up? Did God reveal something unique to Paul about election that wasn't revealed elsewhere? No. Paul is reflecting language like this from Psalm 74, when Asaph prays, Remember your congregation, Israel, which you have purchased of old which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. And the word for of old means from prehistoric times. So Asaph knows that God before time chose to redeem Israel out of slavery to receive an inheritance from God. Asaph knows this and it's in his prayer in plain language. And so Paul reflects that. Revelation 13.8 differentiates unbelievers from believers by calling them everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the Lamb, uh, the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. Revelation 17.8 says, and the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast. Now, Christian... We can never pretend to understand all of the dimensions of God's sovereign work. Let's not be foolish. We will never pretend to understand all of the facets of God's sovereignty. In fact, Deuteronomy 29.29 says the secret things belong to the Lord. God has told us there are things he has chosen not to reveal to us, to not explain fully. And one of those secret things is how God can make a general call to all people everywhere to be saved, a call that we echo gladly and always and passionately. And yet at the same time, Scripture affirms that those who believe have been chosen of God. Now, how exactly do these two fit together? Well, listen carefully. I have no idea. I have absolutely no idea. But far be it from me to dismiss or ignore either side of that beautiful coin. Sovereign election and real, meaningful human responsibility and choice. You know, the Bible has thousands of imperatives, commands in it. Every single command in Scripture is proof that you have to make a choice. You are called to respond to God rightly and will be held responsible for those choices. Thousands of times over, it's implicit in every command. And yet, Scripture over and over and over and over also affirms that our loving God is sovereign in the outworking of his plan of redemption. Now, if you can fit those two things together perfectly and explain every facet of it, then you've done better than Augustine and um, Calvin and Luther and and uh, all the reformers, and every theologian for 2,000 years. So if you can explain that perfectly, please call me. I'll buy lunch, and you iron it out for me. But for me, I would rather not iron either side of this coin flat on the page. I want to let it stand. God's absolute full sovereignty in the affairs of humankind, including salvation, and our absolute responsibility to respond appropriately to God's call. I'd rather let that stand and see the beauty of it. But I want you to see this. Paul didn't write this so we could debate in arrogance. He wrote it so we could worship in awe of God's lavish grace to us, which we now realize he's been pouring out into our account from before the foundation of the world with a view toward eternity future that's incredible. That's incredible. It's humbling, isn't it, to think that God moved toward us while we were still raging against him in our sin. It's humbling. And Christian, it gives us value and worth and significance and purpose more than anything else. Oh, how sad that we try to find value and worth and purpose in the way that we look. We try to find value and worth and purpose in what we accomplish at work. We try to find value and worth and purpose in uh, trying to make our family look like the perfect Christian family from Instagram. Well, quit trying. That's why some of us have never had Instagram. (laughs) Oh, we try to find value and purpose and worth in our title or our bank account or whether or not we have the best bass boat on the block or whatever else it might be. And it would be funny if it weren't so true and if we weren't all infected by this in some way, in a way that hurts. Christian, listen carefully. You have infinitely more value and worth and purpose than you will probably ever understand. And it's because long before you moved toward God, God was moving toward you Pouring out his grace and mercy and calling you his own. What could possibly bestow more worth and value and honor and purpose on you than God adopting you as a child into his family with all of the rights and privileges of a child of God? In Christ, God chose us before the foundation of the world. So, Christian, you are special. You're special. You're significant as a child of God. Let that be the foundation of your self-understanding and self-worth. Never doubt your worth or value again, but see it in God through Christ. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Look at verses 5 and 6 with me. Uh, I want you to see this just briefly. Um, In what way did God choose us? This is no cold affair. This was not a business transaction. Look at verses 5 and 6. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Notice that God's choosing was in Christ and in love. This was no cold affair. He didn't just sit and say, well, I guess I need a people, so I I don't know you. You, I need subjects, I guess him. God didn't choose you to be his employee like a factory owner because you could make him some profit. God didn't choose you to play on his team like a recruiter because you could benefit him. Uh, God didn't choose you arbitrarily like a first responder saving people in the order they come to them or based on a system of triage. God didn't choose you based on a general love or desire to do good, like a philanthropist digging wells in certain villages, knowing that doing some good is better than doing no good. No, what does the text say? Look, he chose us in him, in love, for adoption to himself as sons. This was a choosing of adoption. Part of the wonderful marvel of salvation is that in eternity past, God saw you in some mysterious way next to, alongside, His Son. The choosing was before the foundation of the world, and it was in Christ. And so in the mysterious counsels of God as the Father, Son, and Spirit enjoyed perfect, complete fellowship and love and joy for all of eternity past, at some point God decided to create humanity. The fall didn't catch him off guard and God chose to adopt you into his family to share in the love and the joy that was already existing between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. I've talked to many families who have adopted and said we weren't sure and we thought about it and we prayed about it and and then we met our daughter and we just knew That was not some child, that was our daughter, and we began the adoption process. How beautiful that is. I've had many families tell me that with tears in their eyes. In some mysterious way, God adopted you in love, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. It was a family affair. It was a loving action. It's so spectacular and soaring that God would see us in Christ in that way. It's hard to put into words. You know Romans 8:17 says we are fellow heirs with Christ. Jesus is the son of God and yet God calls us sons and daughters and so that makes us in a sense brothers and sisters of Christ. Romans 8:29 says for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers brothers and sisters. Uh, Hebrews 2.11 says, "...he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them," what? Brothers. God adopted us as sons and daughters, meaning brothers and sisters of Christ. Jesus Christ is both our sovereign creator and Lord and King, and also our brother by merit of our adoption into his family by his Father." in love. And so we will share God's inheritance with him. It's so spectacular. I say it's hard to put into words. It really is. Now, why would God do this? Why would he adopt us into his family? Look at verse 6 again. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. It was so that our hearts and the hearts of others and even the angels would burst forth in praise and thanksgiving at the glorious grace of God on display in and through us. And Christ God adopted us to the praise of His glorious grace. You are loved by God. In considering the depths of our sin and the eternal punishment we deserve, this single fact is enough to cause us and everyone who understands to praise God now and forever. And that is exactly God's goal in adopting you in love into his family. So Christian, in Christ, God has blessed you with every spiritual blessing. You are spiritually rich. In Christ, God chose you before the foundation of the world. You are special in a way that's greater than anything in this life can possibly bestow on you. And in Christ, God adopted you to the praise of his glorious grace. Christian, you are loved. Verses 5 and 6. I'll conclude with an illustration that came from a brother in our church as we were thinking about Ephesians. You know, imagine that you inherit a house and you move into the house and you appreciate the house and you celebrate that house. It was a free gift and over time you realize that the house is kind of expensive to keep up on. And uh, your family and neighbors need help, and you're not sure how you can afford to keep up on the property or help them, and you realize, this is nice, and I'm grateful, it's good to get a free house, but this is kind of hard. This is kind of hard. Then imagine one day you receive a letter explaining that you've also inherited the land over the hill behind the house, a lot of land, land you you never explored because you didn't realize it was yours. And the letter explains that you own the mineral rights to that land as well. Everything that comes out of the ground is yours. So imagine that intrigued, you walk up and crest that hill for the first time. And as you do, stretching before your eyes is the biggest operating gold mine in the world. With buckets of gold coming out literally every hour. Now that letter didn't give you something. It explained to you what had already been given to you, what you already owned, what was already at your disposal waiting to be used, but you hadn't yet realized it. And so you've been living worried, living fearful, living stretched, wondering if you can do this thing that you've been called to with this gift you've been given Christian, I fear, as I say, that we often live timid, fearful, almost impoverished spiritual lives, not praying as we ought, not sharing the gospel as we ought, not serving as we ought because we're afraid. I can't do that. That's too much. I wouldn't have the strength. I wouldn't know how to do that. That's too much to ask God for. That person's too great a sinner. They've been too evil. I could never forgive that person. Oh, the things that we think. and Why do we think that way? It's because we haven't yet laid hold of the fact that in Christ we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Oh, what God can do in and through us if only we will let him. What is it that we're afraid of? What are we holding back in as we think about our lives before God and Christ, empowered by his Spirit? Christian, you are spiritually rich, and it's time to start living like it. I have, uh, here's Ephesians. You ever use these, the little scripture journals? These are great. I have one for Ephesians, and uh, you can go through and mark it up. And I'm going to give this to somebody before we leave here, and especially if you haven't been reading scripture much, you're not in a good daily habit of reading scripture, this is for you. Uh, Come and talk to me, and don't be embarrassed to say I'm not in a great pattern right now, because we've all been not in a great pattern at different times in our lives. So come up and let's celebrate that. I want to give this to you. And I want you to go through this week and mark every instance of in Christ and meditate on it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your love and for the infinite ways that you have blessed us in Christ. Father, we grow slowly over time, but I pray that we would grow by studying your word carefully and deeply and prayerfully and in faith. I pray that we would grow as we realize the depth Of the riches of your grace available to us father i pray that we would begin to lean on you and the power of your spirit already at work in us to live christian lives that are victorious victorious over sin father you have already paid for sin and given us the power of new life to battle sin victorious over satan not afraid of this world's systems father Would you help us to lay hold of the spiritual riches that are ours that we so often don't realize the depth of? We thank you, Father. We love you. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.